So that was the point when it was like a hundred grand in, do you walk away from it and just leave everything? Or do you go, right, we're going for this? I had no doubt I was going for this. Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. Hello and welcome to the first Eventful Entrepreneur episode recorded fully here in our brand new podcast studio. I'm producer Dan and I'm here with the Eventful Entrepreneur himself, Mr. Roger Woodall. How are you, Dodge? I'm very good, buddy. I'm very good. How's it feel to be in here? It feels amazing. Absolutely amazing, actually. We spent, what, the last couple of months building this uh, the podcast suite and what have you. It feels really good. Very new to me. All of this, but it's exciting times, I think. Wonderful new world. We, we have recorded podcasts already, but most of them on Zoom because of uh, the situation we find ourselves in. But it's nice to, we've got a few in the bag in here and it's it's good to be here and uh, sitting around a podcast table. It might be good actually to straight away talk about where the moniker Dodge came from, because a lot of people might not know um, why I just went straight in with the hello Dodge. <laughs> My dad's name is Roger. And when you've got two Rog- Rogers in the house, obviously it gets confusing. So at a young age, I was always known as Dodger. Dad was Roger. I was always Dodger, Dodger, Dodge. And then through my rugby, it helped with Dodge and what have you. So I've always been called Dodger from a young, young age. Literally everybody I know who knows you knows you as Dodge. I, I think a few people out there might not even know your name's Roger. <laughs> so we thought we'd sit down today and give those who don't already know a crash course in your background, your journey to becoming a, uh, the event for entrepreneur and crucially the highs, lows and pressures uh, that comes with it. Dodge is the founder and CEO of the world's largest sport and music festival, Bournemouth Sevens. He has been in the events world for over 20 years and has created successful businesses and brands that many of you would have heard of. Uh, So let's start in the most logical place. When did you first begin showing entrepreneurial tendencies? At a very young age, I think. I was brought up in pubs, lived above flats uh, in London, above pubs. And uh, you're around a lot, a lot of characters, as you can imagine. Started living in pubs at the age of four to probably the age of, well, 20 or about 20 years in pubs. And um, um, and when you're in pubs, you're around characters. You're around fun characters, crazy people, uh, alcoholics, sports people. It's just a whole world of, a whole concoction of different personalities, I guess. Um, and the pub mum and dad had was a real buzz pub. It was a real buzzing pub back then. You know, it was the first pub to have bouncers on the door. You know, they're called doormen now, security guards. But um, is, we had that, a, is that manic in there, was it? It was manic. <laughs> it was really, really full on. And we had a nightclub next door to us. And it was like the pub to be at. Actually, the nightclub next door, in fact, there's a brick wall between my bedroom and the nightclub next door. And every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, loud music till two o'clock. Come on, Eileen. And everyone's stamping their feet. Um, DJ on the mic, making huge amount of noise. So my sleep patterns were kind of all over the gaff at a very young age. Um, but I identified that there was a nightclub next door and I used to go and see the, the manager on a, on a on a Saturday afternoon and buy 20 tickets off him. Um, and everyone would go to dad's pub from about 7pm to about 11pm and I would go and buy tickets off the manager next door. I'd buy 20 tickets off him for a pound and I would sell them to everyone in the pub between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock uh, for two pound. But my tickets would get them queue jump. So they knew they didn't have to wait, you know, 900 people in the queue. They could go straight at the front of the queue, exactly the same price. Everyone's a winner. The manager got his pound. I sold him for two pound. I got my pound a person. I sell 20 tickets every Saturday. 
So I came out at 20 pounds and a young kid at 10 years old, you knew you were onto something here. My paper round, I got like three quid a week. <laughs> yeah, I kind of earned that 20 quid in, in, in less than an hour. But you learned, I learned my trade there. I learned my business there. You know, when you're in a pub, you're around people. I knew that there was a thousand people in our pub. You know, I knew it was a nightclub next door held a thousand people. And it kind of stopped. My memory is really started there. I'm obviously writing the book at the moment. And I've had this massive brain dump of everything that's gone in the past. And it's... um. It's been really refreshing because I've got so many stories. I think this last, this period, this whole lockdown period has kind of given a lot of people and I've seen it in you, an opportunity to reflect and look back and, and look at where you've gone because it can be so easy just to keep on moving on to the next thing, especially as an entrepreneur and a businessman. But do you know what? Looking back at where you've come from explains a lot about who you are today. And I think hearing these stories about this pub life and how hectic it was and and you kind of wheeling and dealing and earning a buck here and there and and, and doing it successfully explains a lot about you. Well, it was it, the, the pub had a lot of people, made a lot of walk by trade. So I kind of want to, since I look back now, I've got, right, in the pub, I was selling tickets to the nightclub next door at the age of 10. Everyone knew I was the manager's son. You know, they had respect there. The doorman would look after me. We'd go up to the doorman up the at the nightclub, they'd look after me. You know, I was going in clubs at the age of 13 with Dorman. You know, so you knew you were protected and you knew you were safe and they'd let you in because you were the manager's son and whatever you so, so that was kind of inside the pub every week. And then at the front of the pub, every May bank holiday, um, I'd set up a, a hot dog and an ice cream stand. And I knew there'd be thousands of people coming through the May bank holiday. Um, so I'd go to Cash and Carry. We'd buy all the hot dogs and the buns and we'd buy all the ice cream just in case you'd sort of edge your bets on pending on the weather. So, yeah, they were good times as well. And, you know, looking back and you think, at the end of the May Bank holiday, I'd earned £600 after paying all your costs off, after paying your mum and dad back of, of the, the initial outlay. And you'd be edging your bets going, if it's sunny, we'll be selling ice creams. If it's not sunny and it's cloudy or it's a normal day, you'd be selling loads of hot dogs. But the cash and carry would do sale return. So we'd take it back on the Monday morning. So it, it was just, it, I learned a lot. That's the fundamentals of business. Absolutely. You're learning the fundamentals of business, yeah. business at a very early age. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of at the front of the pub. And at the back of the pub, <laughs> we had a massive WH Smiths. And WH Smiths back then had these massive toys. They're big transformers and the big things. And if there was a little bit chipped on it or there's a tiny little problem on this toy they used to have these massive skips at the back of our pub and the back of wh smith so they put them in the skips so me and my best mate crisp we grew up together at the age of four went into business and for the for, you know 30 years on and what have you and uh, we'd go skip diving he would hold on to my ankles i'd go into the skips grab the big toys out and i'd set up a stand at the back again walk by trade selling these massive toys to to people and parents and whatever you coming back so i learned this i learned a trade at sort of 10 so if you're going back my entrepreneurial spirit i guess started around that age obviously you you were doing this to keep yourself busy and earn a few quid how was your home life in general home life was very different when you grow up in a pub it's not your normal home life as you'd imagine being in a house and mum and dad cooking together and and calmness and what have you it was it was madness but I loved it. It was madness because I was around adults the whole time. You know, I was seeing everything. I was seeing stuff kids shouldn't see. I was seeing lots of really amazing stuff as well. And I seen how business works. Everyone was, everyone was wheeling and dealing or everyone was doing their stuff in the pub. But I loved, I loved living in a pub. But looking back, it was very, very different. I had a very uncomfy upbringing in the pub. It was kind of like... Um, you know, the pub would close at 11. There was no boundaries for me. I'd be hanging on the doors with the doorman until on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday till 11 o'clock, 11.30, closing time. And then everyone, I'd sell the tickets and then everyone would go to the nightclub and then I'd go to bed. And then everyone would come out the nightclub and then you'd hear, come on, Eileen, all the songs going on. So you're laying there at night, 
till two o'clock here and that. And everyone, everyone would then come out the nightclub and be making loads of noise, which would wake up our two guard dogs, our two Alsatians. They'd start barking at three o'clock in the morning. And then the, uh, and then at five o'clock in the morning, the drayman would come delivering the barrels. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but the barrels rolling around on the concrete, big noise. That would wake up our cockatoo called Bubbles. And that would wake up the monkey we had. And we had canaries as well in the flat. Oh, 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 you brushed over that too quickly. You had a monkey. <laughs> this is madness, man. And only when I look back at it, you actually realise. And I kind of just thought that was normal life until this last few months. I've had a lot of time to reflect. But yeah, we had a, we, <laughs> yeah, we had a pet monkey. What's yeah. his name? Mitzi. Yeah, we had a monkey. We had a, uh, a cockatoo that would sing. And we were all West Ham fans, all our family. And we'd have a cockatoo. It's called Bubbles. So it would squawk in the morning at five, six o'clock and wake us up. I'm forever blowing bubbles. I'm forever blowing bubbles. I'm forever blowing... It would sing, I'm forever blowing bubbles, and that would wake up the monkey, and then the canaries would be flying around the flat. It was... Uh, Dad loved his animals, and, you know, mum and dad... Uh, mum come from Manchester, and dad come from East London, and they, they, they're proper grafters. They're real grafters, and they gave me great opportunities in life, and um, I just think he wanted to live on a farm. <laughs> but he lived above a pub and he kind of wanted that lifestyle, that life, but he was know that he was in a pub to make ends meet, to give me the best opportunity and, and in life. And um, yeah, they were real, real good times. Yeah, obviously circumstance led you to kind of jumping into the business world, even though you might not have considered it business at the time, you might have just considered it and a few quid or extra pocket money. Did your parents teach you a lot about the, the business world as well, seeing them run a pub and what to do, what not to do, etc.? Yeah, I guess so. No one actually taught me business. No one was like, oh, there's no set set training. It was just me being very observant and 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 learning my business trade and seeing what people were doing and being able to being able to read people, you know, and, and, and creating win-wins. And from an early age, I had this absolute buzz of creating win-wins. And I didn't really know what I was doing. Well, what could you don't know what you're doing at the age of 10. You know, you're just creating these win-win situations where they seem to be really happy with what you're offering them and you're earning money from it. And they're super happy because they're getting a great deal. So it kind of stemmed from an early age. And um, yeah, that's where it all started. And you think that's still happening today? 1,000%. Nothing's changed. Just the numbers have got bigger. And you're still waiting for that Maybank holiday. Oh, God, yeah, it's Maybank holiday. I'm surprised. But it's interesting you look at that, in fact, because the Maybank holiday was the big one I used to look forward to. That was the massive one. And actually, obviously now our festival's on the Maybank holiday. And we're selling hot dogs and ice creams? I'm selling hot dogs and ice creams and 30,000 tickets, with it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the numbers have just changed, but the actual, the core business hasn't, hasn't really changed. And I guess even, even back then, you know, I was looking at the weather. There wasn't apps back then in the 80s, obviously, but you're looking at the weather going, hot or cold or rain, hot or cold. What am I going to sell today? At Bournemouth Sevens, the week leading up to it, I'm thinking, oh, please be sunny. Oh, what happens if it rains? Well, I've got to think now. So I mean, I've got more security in certain areas. And so the weather plays a huge part in, I guess, well, it plays a huge part in events. And back then, you only had Michael Fish to rely on, and we know what he's yeah, like. Michael Fish was all over the place, wasn't he? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a legend he was, though, to be fair. So what's your school life like at this time? I was living a double life. I was living a double life, Dan. I was living in a pub. Mum and dad worked relentlessly hard from seven o'clock in the morning, from cleaning the pub to 11 o'clock at night. You know, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for them. They sent me to private school to get me off the, out of the pub, to get me around certain people and, and having all the sporting facilities and what have you. So they knew I was mad on sport and I was, I was fairly good at it at that age. Yeah, it was a double life because I was walking... <laughs> I'd walk to school, you know, I'd walk to school at the start of each term 
And dad would put 600 quid cash in my top pocket, inside top pocket, walk straight to school and go straight to headmaster's office and go, that's my term fees. And the headmaster just pocketed it. He probably just pocketed it. He went, thank you very much. That's not going on the books. Um, but that's how it was. I didn't know no different. But 600 quid back then, is you know, it's a big it's a big wad of money going into the headmaster. And there you go, that's my school fees. And it was actually a brilliant effect because every morning, dad and I would walk to school, about 40 minutes to get to school. Um, dad was a bodybuilder back then. He had the gold gym, tracksuit bottoms and the top and what have you. And uh, we had the two Alsatians. Walking to school, there was me with my posh little school uniform outfit with my West Ham rucksack on. And they were great times. They were times, quality moments, spending with your dad who was your best mate. Quality moments, going to school every day and you could see all the other kids being dropped off by mummy and daddy in, at the front. But all the other kids, you know, dad was like the Pied Piper. He was lovely. He's a lovely, lovely man. Everyone loves him. And uh, he would walk all the kids back and drop them off to all their houses on the way back from school. With these dogs. With these dogs. Bodybuilder. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, all the mums loved him. And, uh, yeah, they were really, really fond memories. And, um, yeah, loved it. Loved it. But it was a double life because then I was going back to the pub, going to bed at silly o'clock and having uncomfy sleeps. And But I guess back then you just didn't know it was uncomfy sleeps. You didn't have this eight-hour that they talk about today and whatever. I'm not too sure how many hours of sleep I had uh, most nights. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you probably had to grow up quite quick back then. Uh, you obviously... You went into business probably 20 years earlier than most people. You uh, you kind of, you're around adults all the time. So it probably gave you a bit of a head start when it comes to certain things. Do you, do you feel that? 100%. <laughs> it's definitely, I think so. Yeah, because you start at a young age and, you know, when you're that age and then you go to school, all I was thinking was, well, each person's going to pay you something if you give them something that they really want. And when I went to school, there was like 300 kids, 400 kids. I was like, what can I sell them? You know, it was amazing. And... um yeah, it was just a it was just a numbers game, and it still is a numbers game. Yeah, you still talk about the numbers game and and see certain things those ways, which is good. Yeah, from those busy and exciting, but also possibly hectic times, uh, those formative years of yours. What happened when you when you left school? When I went to school, I saw all these numbers. And I thought I, I went to Blackbush Market and bought a hundred Timberland jumpers uh, for ten pound a pop. And uh, at school every Friday at five o'clock, the kids would get pocket money back then. So I made sure I'd have all these uh, Timberland jumpers lined up and I would sell like 70, 70 Timberland jumpers um, at £30 a pop. You know, it's big money back then. You're talking like a grand a week. Or uh, I'd have, I was in the dinner hall with this sports teacher I got on really well with. And all of a sudden, one Sunday night at seven o'clock, everyone was coming for their coming in for their dinner. And it was literally 70 Timberland jumpers, everyone wearing their own, own kit. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and you were like, yes, yes. Ching, ching, ching. Yeah, I was thinking, fantastic. I didn't realise they all turned up at the same time. But I remember the school teacher just wetting himself because he knew what I was up to and uh, he sort of turned a blind eye. And he was a sports teacher. You were heavily into sport at that time? Yeah, yeah sport was my thing from a young age. I didn't really sort of, I didn't really understand the sitting in a classroom, having eight different subjects going on in eight different hours throughout the day. I just couldn't get it. I wasn't academic, um, but I was, I love my sport and sport was my way out. Um, and I guess looking back now, the businesses that we've grown over the, over the last 30 years, have all been to do with sport and business, you know? Um, but I just didn't understand how, why I would sit in a classroom and learn about bunts and burners or learn about chemistry and phys and algebra. And I just knew that it wasn't for for life after school, you know, and people, I guess school wasn't built for entrepreneurs. School was built for people who want to go and work, you know, and I was, I was a different breed and, and I'm nothing against people who go and get well-educated and, 
it just wasn't for me. I was staring out the classroom or always my, my default was to muck around and make people laugh. And I just wanted to be out on the sports field the whole time. Rugby, football, cricket, squash, whatever it may be. It's an interesting message for some people that you might not be academically, you know, gifted or you might not actually find that easy. You you might find it really boring, but that doesn't mean you can't be successful in life. No, of course not. Of course not. Some people can be really academic and when they finish school or finish university are, are lost. You know, there's so much you could learn from a book. You know, as a, from a young age, I've become very streetwise very quickly. That plays a huge part in business because at the end of the day, people... A lot of people I know overcomplicate business. It doesn't have to be complicated. Keep it simple. Keep it so simple. You know, I was the kid at school who'd always ask the questions where people would think... You still are. Yeah, I still love a question, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> um, but I was always inquisitive. I was always the one wasn't afraid to put your hand up and say, can you just explain that again, please? I don't quite understand. I know there's 19 other kids in the class thinking exactly the same, but no one had, no one had you know, the front maybe to ask that question and be inquisitive. And um, I'm still the same today. I'll be in business meetings and someone's coming in using jargon. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we just keep this simple? Get the jargon away. What, what, are you, what point are you trying to make? Okay, you're trying to make that point. Fantastic. I get it. Now we can move forward. Yeah, it's easy to hide in the jargon sometimes. Yeah, mate, I don't understand. People try to make themselves look more intelligent by using jargon. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. And, and you know, you see, you see that in the way you run business as well. You keep it simple um, and you explain things simple. And and also that questioning side of you is coming out uh, in, in all guns blazing when it comes to these interviews that we're doing recently. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It's gone full circle again. Going, I love questions. I love being inquisitive. And all of a sudden we've got our own podcast. You've got an excuse to ask <laughs> got questions. got an excuse to ask questions now to real interesting people. Yeah. It's, it's been incredible, yeah, really good. It's been a it's been a fun journey these last what how many months? Five months, yeah, five months, five months. Five months we've been on this journey, and we're going to be launching the podcast soon, and had some brilliant people in, and yeah. So through those going back, I've maybe said through the school years, there's lots of things, there's lots of funny stories. I can't go through all the stories because there was there was loads on how I earned money back then. But we'll get round to them. We'll get round to them. I'm sure we'll bring them up uh, later today. Cutting hair, three pound a pop, putting tram lines in for an extra pound, yeah goes on and on but that came in handy during lockdown <laughs> <laughs> so how, how far did you take sport in the end um i was rug i was a i was a football kid really yeah. i wanted to be a footballer my dream was to score the winning goal at wembley for west ham you know at the fa cup final that was my dream i used to dream about that stuff i used to do signatures in my classroom think i'm gonna be a professional footballer i'm gonna session a footballer then kind of went to school played rugby um and yeah and, and pushed the rugby thing really I uh, went to got sports scholarship at school um, and then went to Loughborough University, which is a massive sports university. Did my rugby there, uh, went and did a rugby season in New Zealand, went there as a boy, come back as a man. That was a massive, massive game changer for me. And then when I came back uh, at school, I was playing for Wasps Academy while at school and then did the, did the New Zealand rugby thing. And when I came back, I went to Leicester Tigers Academy, age of 20. Had a few games there, played in Rory Underwood's testimonial at Welford Road. See, Rory was England's top try scorer, played against the British Isles 15, which it was all good experiences. And that's when it turned pro back then. And um, I played semi-pro for a year and really enjoyed, really enjoyed my rugby. Um, you know, I knew I wouldn't be able to get any further than that because I had so much my mind on business. You know, get given a car, brand spanking new car to drive around while you're at university was phenomenal and get paid each week. Um, and get free stash and, you know, going playing from just playing rugby and for nothing. And then all of a sudden 
getting paid a bit of money in a car and all these wonderful things it was very humbling. And when I was at Leicester, it was all my friends around me were then taking the next step up and playing first team and then playing for England and then getting caps and da -da, and I could see them just rising. And I, w I, I knew that I was never going to get to anywhere near that level, but I knew that I got to as far as I could get to and, and really enjoyed my rugby and, and I just stopped at the age of 23. But you had another itch to scratch, didn't you? Like they're, they're all sports, sports, sports. Yeah. You had this in the back of your mind of, I want to be a businessman. I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I went to when I went to sports university, you know, it was all about, I was like, my God, there is 12,000 people on campus. My eyes were like that again, pound a man. My mum actually said to me when I went to university, I'm like, just think pound a man. So you got to think pound a man. So first year, first year at uni, I was doing a PE sports science degree. Again, I didn't really get the degree thing, but I was thinking I'm on campus here and you become a bit of a face on campus because you're, you know, you're a good laugh and you're one of the rugby boys. And year one, I remember taking hundreds and hundreds of Adidas hoodies up there because I knew it was a sports campus. Everyone back then, you know, if you get hold of your hands on an Adidas hoodie, you get 30 pound a pop and I bought them for tenors. Again, I was just thinking, this is unbelievable. And you're going around the halls of residence selling them in packs of tens and twenties and thirties. And, you know, it was really good money back then. And that kind of led me in year one and then in year two, I find I kind of found the the events world, you know, but even at school I was putting on smaller parties and stuff. But actually this is when it really hit the events world for me. What was your first event? First event was 1999 in Loughborough and it was called Fill Your Boots. And it was a place called Casablanca. Um, and <laughs> good story, in fact. There was, um, there was four rugby mates of mine. And back then in 1999, there was this wonderful movie that went global called The Full Monty. Yeah, you can leave your hat on. Leave your hat on and they've got all the, uh, the hats and the Velcro thing. And the four rugby lads learned the dance move, uh, learned the sort of like 10-minute show type thing. And they had the cap, they had the, they had the hats, they had the Velcro jackets and the Velcro trousers they'd whip off. And, and they were going to do this on in the Students' Union at Loughborough. And all of a sudden, the Students' Union were like, whoa, 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 this is too dangerous for us to have this in here. So I said to uh, I said to them, I'll get the venue. We'll get you four boys on stage. All the girls would pile in. I brought in a, a, a comedian. Friends of mine who were playing for England at Leicester Tigers at the time were the celebrities and they would have signed balls and this and that. And it was, I threw the party on a Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. The most random time you could ever pick because I knew I'd get the venue for free. Sold all these tickets at six pound. I was like, Oh my God. And back then on campus, I would have the way of promoting back then because there was no social media. We'd have just big luminous posters. And I would have, uh, there was on campus, there was all different halls of residence. There was like 12 halls of residence. I'd have people in each hall all selling tickets for me. And we sold loads of tickets for this event. And it was rammed and everyone had a ball. Everyone's getting on the beers at 11, 12, 1, 2. And I was like, my God, this is unbelievable. The atmosphere here is electric because it was something new. Completely new. Um, so they finished at four and they were all lost. So I went to the club. I phoned up the nightclub. I got the nightclub owner's uh, mobile phone. I said, can you open the club at seven o'clock tonight? So we don't open Sundays. We're not stupid. We're not stupid, exactly. Who's going to do a party on a Sunday? So yeah, we opened, opened that club up, got a thousand people in. I took the door on there as well. And I was like, I think I'm onto something here. So that was like year two of university. And then that summer, I went and spoke to the nightclub owner and said, you're packed on a Wednesday night. It was Echo's nightclub in Loughborough. You're packed on a Wednesday night, sports night, and you get a thousand people there come rain or shine. Why don't you give me a pound, pound a man? 
You keep your two pound. I'll promote the backside of it, out of it. I know everyone on campus. And we'll drive more people there at an earlier start. So they agreed it. And that was my best ever deal I've cut to this day. They had a, uh, a pool hall next door. I said to them, look, we've got a thousand people in here and I'm getting people there, not 11 o'clock, I'm getting people there at 10 o'clock. So you're getting an extra hours on the bar. Why don't we knock through the pool hall and open that into another nightclub? So it's a room two. And they agreed to it. So we've got the capacity up to 2,000. We packed out 2,000 students every Wednesday, sports night. I got pound a man in my final year at uni. It was just, I literally was blown. I was blown away, Dan. And, and I was thinking, I'm onto something here. That, that kind of money for a student. Honestly, Dan, it, it was, I couldn't tell you the feeling that I had on a Wednesday night, taking that money back to my student digs throwing it in the air going, what am I doing a degree for? What is the point of doing all this? You know, and, and my degree got, I didn't really have much focus on my degree. I was just getting, I was just going through the motions just to get through and get passed into the next year because I had these, I had these plethora of people on campus, tons of people. And in that final year, my best mate, Chris and I had a, uh, spoke to another nightclub in, in Wandsworth in London called Liquid Nightclub. It was an old theater out of all the parties we thrown the best venue there is for us. We've thrown a lot of parties um, over the years and we've done a deal with them. We've got all the Roehampton students there every Tuesday. So my final year, I was driving down to London on Tuesday afternoon, throwing that party, taking the door money, coming back at four o'clock in the morning back up to Loughborough to then be promoting the Loughborough party to taking the door money on the, on the Wednesday. That went on for 30 weeks of that student year. It took me to the end. Um, and that was where the journey really started. And you held out to a graduation? Oh, yeah, I just about got a 2-2. Two -two. <laughs> I was very pleased with it. Very pleased. It was actually funny, in fact. Everyone knew what I was up to, and I didn't go to many lectures. And on my graduation, it wasn't even on my mind. I graduated. Well done. You got a 2-2. Two -two. Your mum and dad are coming up. They're really proud of you and your sister. And I didn't even think what I had to even wear at graduation. I kind of, my dad turned up in a shirt and tie and a blazer, and he gave me a shirt Gave me his blaze and I think he gave me a size 11s and I was a size 10 to go on stage. So your dad was topless at your graduation. <laughs> he, was topless, yeah, he was all ripped. But, you know, I did, again, it wasn't even on my mind. And, and I remember going on, because my surname's Woodall, I was the last one to go on stage and it was a massive hall field. And everyone, when I went up there, said, Roger Woodall, you've got a 2-2. Two -two. And everyone went, way Because they knew that I'd been on the road the whole time of the year. And, yeah, good times, really good times. And that really was the start of my, you know, you had to think what you, after uni, what do you do? People, majority of people go, well, I need to find a job. I was a different mindset. I'm not going to go and work for anyone. I can't work for anyone. I don't think I'm employable. Uh, um, that was in the July I finished. And, and actually in the August, I forgot about this one, in fact, in the August, we threw a party, went to Ministry of Sound. And Ministry back then in 1999, 2000 was like the best club in the world. You know, CDs, TV shows, MTV. It was all about Ministry of Sound in, in, in London. And uh, me, and, me and Chris thought about throwing a party there. You know, and um, we thought... Why don't we do a party on the A-level results day, which was the 17th of August, 2000. Why don't we put a party on there? Uh, a black tie party, charged £35. It was a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money for, <laughs> for today, really. Black tie party on the day of your A-level results. So we, were, we, we sent all the flyers out, made up this big, beautiful A5 flyers, the London Student Ball, we called it. Celebrities, just a but at Ministry of Sound. So it was the venue, the date, and again, when you're putting on events, it's all about the venue and the date and how you promote it, um, whether you're going to make it success or not. Um, so we thought, right, why don't we put a, a, a black tie party for the posh kids, A Love Results Day, 
um, and promote it to them. So back then we'd have to uh, stamp envelope, put in 50 flyers, send them out to all the schools, the head boys, the head girls. And it was a real long-winded way, but we knew no different. Um, and I remember getting, I remember get, trying to get the club. It was a real pain in the backside. So there's hungry, hungry me phoning up. Hi, Minister Sound, I want to uh, hire your club. Who are you? Oh, yeah, I want to put a London student ball on. Uh, sorry, we're busy. Mm, okay, next day. Sorry, it's, uh, I was literally relentless. They were like, sorry, we're busy. No, we're not interested. Sorry, we're busy. No, we're not interested. It's not for us. It's not our demographic. We're too cool for you. Da, 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 whatever it was. Um, and I end up getting that club. Just by being relentless. By being relentless. I must have phoned, no word of a lie, I must have phoned 21 days on the trot, two or three times a day. They gave up. They did give up. They were like, for Christ's sake, let's just meet this guy and just put put, put ourselves out of the misery. So they said, yeah, okay, we'll have a meeting with you. So I thought, fantastic. Me and, me and Chris jumped in the car, went to Elephant and Castle, met them in the club. And as we walked in, we're like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. You know, young 20-year-olds looking at ministry as if it's like the best thing. And it was the best thing back then. And we went straight into the meeting. They were very abrupt and like, yep, you can have the club. We've decided. Me thinking, oh, hopefully the rent will be a thousand pound or 1,500 quid or whatever, max. Um, yeah, it's 5,700 plus VAT. <laughs> I remember looking at Chris thinking, what's VAT? What's VAT, <laughs> number one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's VAT, number one? But 5,700 to rent it for the night from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Are you sure? And we both looked at each other and, we, and we, you know, we're, we're tight as and we know by looking in each other's eyes what answer we we're going to give. And both of us at the same time said, yeah, we'll take that. And then we'll think about it afterwards, paying the rent and the five seven. So we actually took that, signed the contract that day they tweaked the amendment, they amended the contract, da, 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 and we took it. Now we're committed, we're in. Did you have to pay before or after? Uh, before. They, well, there's no track record for us. You know, with these two young lads from London, you know, two best mates growing up with each other, who are they? Um, so we promoted the backside out of that for what, in my final year uni, and we put that party on in August, the month after we, I, I graduated. So that was nationally, you were inviting people yeah, to that Yeah, nationally. Yeah. So we're trying to scale up. We're thinking, well, if we sent out to all the post schools all around the UK... Hopefully, people buy into this. Because up until then, you'd be using your ready-built captive audiences at school, at uni. You had these audiences there, and you were thinking, all these people, a pound a man, I can get a quid out of. Now you're going national and saying, let's get as many people as we can. Did that feel quite intimidating, going from this captive audience to the UK? No. No way. No way. Oh, that, was, that was the buzz. You know, you can't be that adrenaline of being an entrepreneur. You cannot beat that adrenaline. And I tell everyone now when I mentor another entrepreneur, that feeling you will not get anywhere else. And for me, I was just thinking, bring it on. No fear. Let's go. I've got no fear of no people, no one turning up. I'm going to make this work. We're going to make this work. What have we got to do to make this work? Drive it, drive it, drive it. We were relentless and um, we made it work. How was it when people started turning up to that? Oh, I get the same feeling now. I put on 1,500 parties in different cities all around the UK for 10 years and obviously 12, 13 festivals now. And the feeling of people queuing up outside your event or your festival, whatever it is, you cannot beat that feeling. If I could if I could bottle that, I think you, you, people would pay a lot, a lot of money for that. That's the best feeling, one of the best feelings of, of, of putting on events. Something you made happen becoming real. Yeah, well, because you, you get an idea out of thin air as an entrepreneur. Go, right, you hear the saying, oh, uh, an idea off the back of a fag packet or the idea comes over a beer it does it does doesn't matter what everyone reads in these books these entrepreneur books and business plan this and business plan that 
all my friends who are entrepreneurs, um, who are festival owners or event owners or successful entrepreneurs, it's all just an idea over a beer or over a glass of red wine or when you're in the shower and you're just thinking or you're on a run and your mind's clear and clean, you know, and, and at a very young age, I had a strong mindset, you know, that come from my parents. My mum and dad, they were strong-minded, you know, they were brought up with nothing and they were grafters and, and, and they gave me the, uh, the freedom. They gave me the freedom in a lot of ways. And obviously we'll get to one of those big ideas over a drink shortly. Uh, but before we get there, did this kind of ministry night lead to you being in the nightclub scene full time? Yeah. Yeah. That's me. I had a whole year, remember, leading up to it of two parties each week um, for a whole year while my final uni. Then it was the Ministry of Sound gig. That was the August. And you got to remember that the September, all the students come back again. So I teed up another contract uh, for that first year. So I had uh, Loughborough, uh, Loughborough, Echoes Nightclub in Loughborough, had, uh, a club in Leicester and I had a club in London. So I had three nightclubs um, in year 2000, starting in that September. And the dot-com boom was then. It came about. So I thought, let's be the pioneer here. Let's get onto a website and create a website for, for our brand. And we created a brand called popyourcherry.com, <laughs> which was, I don't know if anyone knows the Pasha logo, you know, the sort of the, the two cherries. We kind of took that and tweaked it a little bit um, and had popyourcherry.com. And it just worked amazingly well for the students. It really sort of resonated with their, their character. And, um, and we were the first people really to take it the bull by the horns and actually create student nights across the UK. Um, you know, going down that route of your big brother PAs, you know, reality TV stars, England rugby stars coming in, signing things and going on stage and uh, creating theme nights and fire breathers and, and just making a spectacle rather than people just going into the student union or a nightclub and hopefully they turn up. We were making a spectacle and creating a big VIP queue and selling VIP cards at the start of the year. They could queue jump for the whole year. I pay twenty pound the queue job for the whole year, and just made people feel special. People in the queue when they were queuing up, you'd be grabbing the people from the back and bringing them down the front. Make people feel special, and that's that's part of the part of the game. So I love what you've just said applies still to what we do with Bournemouth Sevens. A, a lot of it, and and you had the foresight, obviously, to be using kind of early influences back in those days. Yeah. So really early reality TV stars and using them as a draw, as more value for their ticket. Yeah. Absolutely. I haven't thought of it like that, in fact. But it's true, I guess. It's a, a early influencers. And there was no social media back then. It was it was the power of flyers and posters. The more flyers that we printed, we'd print a million flyers. We've got to get, in each city at the time, you've got to get 50, 60,000 flyers to hand. Now, you're out there flyering at two o'clock in the morning outside nightclubs or before nights for your night the next night. You're outside in the rain and and weathers that you go i've got to make this work because every person who comes into your club you're taking the door money for you know so every person you see is a contact um and they all know 10 people and if they have a great time they're going to bring another three or four five six mates the following week and all of a sudden you create this weekly party that people are going wednesday night we're going there tuesday night we're going to that club in that city we're going there because of the poppy cherry brand but you know there wasn't facebook so you couldn't put photos up and uh, and and be promoted that way I found this uh, geeky friend of mine who was really, really, really sharp in the sort of that in that techie world back then, um, and he developed this this kind of I guess it's called an app today. But he developed this thing which is a photo gallery. We'd have girls in there all wearing uh, 
the Poppy Cherry brand and what have you and giving out sweets and champagne and drinks and what have you. And they would go around taking photos of everyone. And we'd get those photos, upload them at three o'clock that morning that they would be uploaded straight away. It took about four hours to upload like a hundred photos that we'd be pushing the .com and then people would go back on there just to see their photos, which would allow you to then promote the next week, the next theme or the next event. Obviously, the, the nightclub scene is fast-paced and exciting. You obviously enjoyed it, but it can be cutthroat and customers kind of it can be like moths. They're attracted to the newest, brightest thing yeah. and are quite fickle sometimes. How did you keep relevant? Obviously, you've already spoken about keeping it exciting and, and putting on an experience. How did you make sure you're ahead of everybody else? Yeah, promoting hard, creating a brand. Creating a brand was number one. You can create businesses, businesses come and go. If you create a brand give you so much longevity because the brand is what people talk about when you're not there you know it's what they talk about and how they feel and their experience and we gave people wonderful experiences from start to finish from the moment they arrived to the actual event and the music and the vibe to the moment they left with a good night see you next week have a great time can't wait to see you and it was about relationship so the relationship in each city you know we we, we grew we really scaled up the business from year one to year 10. At one point, we had 12 nightclubs every week from Manchester to Leicester to Birmingham to Brighton to Bournemouth to Exeter. To, it goes on, Oxford, it goes on. And we had 12 and there was me and Chris, two of us with a mobile phone. So you had to set up teams. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really good with people. I love people. That's my thing. I love having fun. And you set up teams that you're driving up there, you're dropping off the 50,000 flyers and those teams of people all on a cut. So the more people we get, every nightclub was minimum was a thousand. And back then we had the super clubs, which went up to 2,700 each week at three or four pound a pop. So it's kind of, it was really, really, really working. And we sort of took the UK by storm at that point, because actually this is the first student proper brand that's come on the scene. It's all about relationships, but you know, you, you, you'll get a nightclub in one city, there might be five nightclubs and one nightclub is, four nightclubs might be closed. One nightclub might be usually packed. We'd go to a nightclub that's closed and say, look, we believe we can get 2,000 students in here every single week. And we have the, we, have, we take the door, you take the bar, you pay the security, we bring in the DJs and we promote it. And it's a win-win. They were over the moon because it was a midweek night where they're not open. We're over the moon if we pack the club out. So it was, in our, it, was, it was vitally important that we did everything we can to get everyone in our nightclub every week. It sounds like everything was going well. You, you were earning well, you had successful nights, you had a great brand. When did you start thinking and why did you start thinking of exiting the, the nightclub world? Mm. I really sensed, I think it was 2006 or 2007, I really sensed that, you know, the government gave uh, 24 hour licenses to lots of bars and uh, clubs. No one really used the 24 hour license, but it gave you the accessibility to use your license maybe to one o'clock where you got to think the business model back then was everyone would drink from 7pm till 10pm, all the bars would ship out and... People are on the streets and which club are they going to go to? It's hard to think of that now, of being shipped out of pubs at, at 10. And yeah, absolutely. It doesn't happen anymore. People don't go out till 10 these days. No. You know, so, yeah, exactly. Pranked, exactly. So that was, that was, that was like, that was when it's kind of hit home, really, because all of a sudden you had these bars. We're thinking, well, I'm having everyone drinking in our bar from between 7 and 10. Then everyone's leaving us. Why don't we open till 1 a.m.? And why don't we put a little tiny dance floor in there? And that's what the bar started to do. So we were like battling with the bars, trying to get them out of the bars into the club. And, you know, when you're, when you're settled somewhere sometimes and you're having a few drinks, sometimes you think, can't be bothered to go to a club now. Mm. Should we stay in the bar? A bit longer, a few more drinks here. You know, go to, we'll be in bed by one rather than going to 
bed at three or whatever. So I kind of sensed that was happening and the bars were holding people back. And then in sort of 2007, they also brought in smoking ban in nightclubs. You know, for years you'd go in a nightclub and everyone would be smoking. It was just the norm, you know, and all of a sudden they, they made this, created the smoking ban and everyone then had to leave the nightclub, stand outside in the rain or snow and have a fag out there. Again, was another painful moment, I think, for the experience of the, of the, of the nightclub goer going, I've got to go outside and have a cigarette now. This is a bit of a nuisance. So all these factors were, were, were playing a part. And being an entrepreneur, you're thinking the next thing. You're thinking the next thing. You know, I was a happy disruptor. I love disrupting the market in terms of, right, I can see an opportunity here. What's the next big thing? Saw an opportunity with the student nights, taking the scaling that up nationally. And it's like, right, what's the next thing? And back then in 2007, 2008, there wasn't very many festivals around the UK. Now we've got hundreds of festivals. It certainly wasn't the beast it is today. So the festival market is oh, huge now. Oh my God. The events industry is, one, it's the most exciting industry to be in. 100%. Fact. That is, the, you cannot beat the buzz you get from being in this industry. So then I saw the opportunity thinking, I know how to promote and it's all flyers and posters. Can I use my skill set, hire a field and put on a festival? That's a whole new that's a whole new chapter, I guess, talking about the last 13 years of, of creating uh, Bournemouth Sevens. But, you know, it gave me it gave me the confidence, I guess, for after creating, obviously, Pop Your Cherry brand and the Bubble Love brand and the Fill Your Boots brand. I was thinking, right, now I can create a brand and put people in a field. Was that a moment that that popped into your head or was that a gradual process? Do you remember the moment that it happened? I do remember the moment it happened. And I was on the, I was on the Bournemouth beach with a... a, a a pal of mine, good mate of mine, Finchie, and we were just talking about opportunities. And, you know, at this time in 2007, I was sensing the nightclub world was going that way gently. And I just saw the opportunity. And I, I know that global financial crisis in 2008, I just saw that as a bigger opportunity. You know, I wasn't scared by it. Yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of ready as well. You've got to remember when you're away from family life or home life, you're away on the, on the road Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, staying in hotels. After nine years, it gets a bit monotonous. Mm, I bet. It's gone from growing up in pubs, living in nightclubs, <laughs> essentially. I just wanted a normal life. I just wanted to not leave home at 8 p.m. and get home at 4 a.m. and get up at midday. I just didn't want that in my life. I wanted this new life. And this kind of would, creating a festival would open me up to this new chapter in my life, I guess. At what age were you now? 30, 29, 30. So you had hit an age where you were just like, this nightclub seems hectic. Yeah. I've been hectic my whole life. Yeah. I've been living in pubs and I've been working yeah. in clubs till God knows when. Noise. And now I just want to do that once a year. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I was putting 12, essentially I was putting 12 nightclubs into one big field and doing that once a year, which brought its huge risks as well because you're relying on three days of the year. You're not relying on 365 days of the year. You're relying on three days of the year and that's huge gamble and huge risk, but I love risk in a weird way yeah and it makes it exciting uh but what did you have to think about like there's a lot that goes on when it comes to festivals and putting on festivals and promoting festivals that you don't even have to think about when it comes to nightclubs how did you go about it did you know what you're doing i didn't have a clue then <laughs> honestly buddy i did not have a scooby it was literally got an idea i'm gonna make this work right where's the venue right i've got to speak to marquee companies what do they look like I've got to speak to showers and, and fencing companies and Wi-Fi companies and toilet companies and the police and the council and the licensing and the fire brigade and the airport, which is next door to our festival, Bournemouth Airport. I didn't have a clue. And there was just me and my wife. We didn't have a team of staff. We didn't have a team of anything. It was just myself and Fleur. 
Didn't have a clue. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Which is, is a good and a bad thing, I suppose. Being naive in business can be very, very good. Doesn't matter what anyone says in all these books. You've got to go with your gut. And when you've got your heart leveled your mind, if you can match those two up, and you know you could be really onto something. But my gut feeling is really powerful. And people listening out there, if you've got a gut feeling, please stick with your gut. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was uh, crazy times, mate. Crazy times. You're taking on a festival with, you know, you've got to remember my wife was working at JP Morgan. She was working at JP Morgan. And, and literally six months before, I said, I, was, I could not breathe. You know, so much going on. I was, there were so many contacts. I was trying to get teams in, um, trying to create the brand. I was trying to promote. I was trying to speak to all these different suppliers. It was wild. This is when pressure properly oh, comes God. in. Oh, God. That was, you know, I always called it pressure. I don't like to link stress with pressure. But actually, when you're, you said earlier, Dan, I've only taken a look back over what's gone on in the last 30 odd years of my business life since, the, since a young kid. It's only now that I've had this brain dump of putting everything down. I'm like, my God, you haven't looked back once. And I haven't. It's only now and it, and all these stories are coming out and I've got tons of stories that have happened over the years. And um, There's a tease for future episodes. <laughs> mate, there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of, a lot of fun stories happened. And uh, so basically I said to her, I said, I can't breathe. There's too much going to, what are the chances of you leaving your JP Morgan job? She had a great salary. She had a great number working four days a week and she's not a risk taker. Flo and I are totally opposites. Um, she's good looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're totally opposites. And um, and she, bless her, said, okay, I'll go on this journey with you. And she left her job. So there was Flo and I, and, and all of a sudden, when you're working with your partner with pressure, it brings its own pressures, let alone financial pressures, let alone living and breathing at 18, 20 hours a day and not sleeping and laying there at three o'clock in the morning, mind spinning with too much on your mind. Yeah. That moment when Flair leaves her job, it obviously alleviates a little bit of pressure for you. So it's got somebody else helping you out full time, but that's adding a whole lot of new pressure in this has to work because we have no backup now. Yeah. This has to work. Yeah. How did that feel? I was, I had to make it work. I had to make it work for me and, my, me and Fleur. Had to. There was no ifs or buts, Dan. It, it, was, it was, if this doesn't work, we're screwed. Um, because, yeah. Brings up quite a bit of emotion, in fact, thinking about it, because it, it was, it was, it was. <sighs> there is no turning back now because we've invested all this money. Fleur's left her job. If we turn around now, we have lost everything. We, no matter what happens now, we've lost everything or we make something work. It, yeah. We just have to I remember that forward. moment. I remember that moment. Everyone wanted money up front. I had no track record of putting on festivals or outdoor events. So everyone money up front. So all of a sudden I was thinking... It's going to cost us about 100 grand. All of a sudden, six months before, I've done all these deals, cut the deals with marquee companies, da 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 da. All of a sudden, before, I was thinking, oh, we'll, we'll pay everyone afterwards. Everyone wanted paying up front. That 100 grand went in two weeks. Recession, global recession 2008, banks not loaning money, sponsors finding it tough, people tightening ship. That was the point. And I looked at Florence like, We've run out of money, just to let you know. <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to get money from somewhere. So that was the point when it was like 100 grand in, do you walk away from it and just leave everything? Or do you go, right, we're going for this? I had no doubt I was going for this. No doubt. You just had to persuade the non-risk taker. Yeah, <laughs> I, that, was, that was hard. That was hard. You've got to remember there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of tears going on here. This is serious stuff. 
So we spoke to the bank, um, spoke to our mortgage company and remortgaged our house, which is, anyone listening to this, do not do that. <laughs> Honestly, um, you know, everyone in business talks about, entrepreneurs talk about calculated risk. I, I mentor other people about taking calculated risk. That was not a calculated risk. That was a ballsy, crazy risk. Hail Mary. Hail Mary, which thank God has paid off. But yeah, so we, so anyway, cut a long story short, 100 grand uh, in, the festival cost 300 grand to put on. And we run out of money six months before. I was way under too much pressure. I had to go and find someone. And I was in the gym one day in Bournemouth and I saw Sophie Christie and uh, I said to her, do you, you know, we've got this sport music festival. It's rugby and I want to introduce netball. Do you play netball? She went, yeah, I do play netball. Fantastic. You know, would you like to come on board? She didn't know we had no money. She didn't know the finance situations. And she was straight away. She's like, I would love, tell me a bit more. I'd love to come on board. Should she come on board? We didn't have the money to pay her. She didn't know that. She now does know that. <laughs> <laughs> but she came on board and she was a huge, she was huge. She took a lot of pressure off me. So then again, the pressure was split between two people now and it split between three with like five months to go before the festival. And it was promoting, promoting, promoting. And remember that, you know, we're promoting flyers and posters and, uh, and um, the pressure was all on for those next five months of getting people through the doors. And, and, and you know, people would pay back then by cheque. And we didn't have offices. It was just through our house. And I do an advert in Rugby World magazine. Um, and all these uh, checks would come through the post for £120. It cost back then for a team. So one day I had three letters come through. I was opening them up going, oh, my God, we're onto something here. Then six, I'd open six letters the following day, then 12, and then three the next day. And it added up to 96 teams had paid by check that they wanted to come to this new Bournemouth Sevens Festival. So that's when I was like, Sophie, you, we need to, we can't have this festival as a sausage fest. <laughs> How do we get the girls here? And that was why we brought her on board to bring the netballers there. And she brought in 24, 28, 30 teams, I think year one, which was just brilliant. So combining the rugby and netball, no one was doing it in the UK, no one was doing it worldwide, but combining the rugby and netball is what really, really took us off. You know, we would promote back then flyers, posters. We would go up to Twickenham, I'd take four carloads of students up. I'd buy all the girls... Um, Superman's outfits with the hot pants and the capes and the and the band at the front and all the lads would wear a Superman's outfit with the capes and we'd go up there, park up and we'd take up 50,000 flyers and fly outside the stadium and in the car parks and on the cars and underneath the windscreen wipers and when everyone was be having beers in the, in, the, in the main sort of party arena outside the stadium, we'd be flying everyone and I remember I remember at one point I just had this moment, I was never dressed up, I just had all the flyers on the rucksack and then you'd see all these security chasing superwomen and supermen all around the place. <laughs> and we'd be hiding in the toilets and security go past and go back. But we didn't care because we had to let people know about this. I can just hear the Benny Hill music. Oh, man, it literally was like that. And then we'd jump back in the car and we got rid of, say, 40,000. It's interesting when you see people when you're flyering. You know, there's people, I still remember people going, oh, Dodge, you're flyering. Well, you're on £5 an hour and getting the flyer. And sometimes that can be quite disheartening. You know, and people, there are a few beers. They didn't mean it, you know, but I was just on a mission. I was thinking, I'll wait till you see what we go up our sleeve and wait to see how we're going to grow this. And, you know, and um, they're really good times. And there was one key moment, Dan, I'll never forget. Mark Zuckerberg, thank you very much. <laughs> I had 10 years of flyering and fly posting, and he brought this thing called Facebook. Your printing costs plummeted. Printing costs went down by about 100 grand or whatever the price was. 
thank you very much. He then brought this thing. It landed on my lap with four months before the first festival to say, I've brought you something where you can speak to people by pressing buttons. You can get people to join your groups and invite people for free. And the organic reach back then was huge. And all of a sudden we're building up all these numbers and numbers and numbers. And I was pressing buttons and people were replying, going, love to come to this festival. How do you buy tickets? Oh, you can't really buy tickets, really, because no one back then would put a card over the computer and then say, yeah, there's my card and we'll buy 15 tickets at 20, 30 pound a pot. It just didn't happen. No one, everyone was scared back then. So that brought us more pressures because you had 96 teams or 120 teams or whatever in year one and they all turned up in their camping gear and uh, turned up on the Friday. And on a Saturday morning, that was an amazing feeling, by the way, seeing all the teams come in. But on the Saturday morning, I'm waiting outside the festival, security in place, everyone in place, tents up. You've built the site. It's taken two weeks to build or 10 days to build the site back then. You're waiting for people to turn up. And these are the party people. It's not like they've bought their tickets no. and they're coming down. No. You've got to wait for them to actually turn up and pay on the door. Imagine the weather was bad. Oh, man. I remember on that day, my emotions leading up to that, of going back to bit as a kid looking at weather, the weather forecast was never right. One minute it's going to tip down and rain. Next minute it's sunny. Next minute it's tip down and rain. Next day it's sunny. It just, the emotions were all over the place. Open up the curtains Saturday morning, six in the morning. Oh my God. It's sunny and blue skies. Went down the festival site. There's this huge queue building. And again, that goes back to bottling that feeling of seeing a huge queue of people for the hard work you put in to see them turn up wanting to come to your event for the experience you're going to put on for them. Can't be, honestly, I can't. I, w I would swap a lot of things for that for, to bottle that. It's I've I've had a small version of that. Seeing ha having worked the festival for the last five years, yeah. when you're there at you know early doors in the morning, you know everyone's getting prepared, and then finally you just see hordes of people turning yeah. up, and it's it's a buzz. You've been working on that for a year, and then you see it all coming to fruition. It's 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 a crazy feeling. I can't imagine what it felt like that first year. Oh, unbelievable! But it was all the unknown. Remember, I had no mentors. I wasn't following the music festival route because music festivals, they pay millions of pounds up front for DJs and bands and everything. And that's what sells the tickets, drives the trade, which brings its pressures in itself. We weren't, we were about creating a fun experience with like-minded people partying in a field for three days. Sports people, people who were ex-students, people who were just wanting to come and have fun and drink and dance and laugh. And that's what I've done for 20 odd years creating great experiences for people that success was obviously a, a lot of hard work and graft and, and getting flies in hand and that gift that you were given by zuckerberg yeah. uh, there and and you applied a lot of those skills that you learned from the graft and the and the marketing and the selling hot dogs and selling ice creams yeah. and selling you know whatever it is at, at university and school um, and you just applied that to the digital realm yeah. and that's still what we're doing today isn't it yeah the digital world, thank you so much. And you know what? I'm really happy that I experienced the marketing, the proper marketing. If you were marketing back then, you were grafting. You know, marketing these days, is it graft? It's not graft. It's been a bit more clever. You've got to remember as well, you're paying a lot more money these days. You don't get any uh, organic reach these days on Facebook and Instagram. Don't get me wrong, Facebook now, you can advertise to the exact person, to the exact age, to the exact location in the country. So it brings its benefits as well. The one thing that, you know, I'm big on LinkedIn, I've been off social media now, as you know, for a year. How's that been? Oh, lovely. Lovely. Talk about decluttering the mind, you know, and I can see why social media is sending some people a bit crazy with anxiety and, and all the stuff that goes with that. And I think it's a real shame 
that our society has not got just heads in phones walking around and not seeing the beautiful country we live in and what's going on around you. So, you know, that, that feeling of freedom for the mind. I don't care what other people are up to. I wish them all the best. I just care about the people around me. And anyone in business got to have social media, but it draws you in when you don't want to be drawn in. So I was only going to do it for a month. I loved it so much. Went to three months, went to six months, nine months, 12 months, and now I've done a year. But now you're back with a purpose. And I think this is where I think social media has has its value is it's no good you sitting there scrolling and scrolling and scrolling mm. through what everybody's up to. If you're using it for self-development and for, for betterment of your, yourself and for the people around you, it can be really powerful because you can immediately get in touch with people in the same situation with you or the situation you want to be in and be in contact with those people. And that's kind of what you're looking to do now. Yeah, and I've got a lot to give back. I want to give back and, and teach people that you don't have to go to uni. You don't have to have all the grades. You know, you can go and get experience. You can learn. There's so much to learn on the internet. The internet is so young. I want to give back. I want to give people the confidence. I want to give people the, I want to inspire others. I want to inspire people who are going into business. I want to inspire younger entrepreneurs, people who are in startups. And I give a lot of value already to people who get in contact. I give a lot of my time for free because I'm genuinely, genuinely passionate about this industry. I'm passionate about marketing, passionate about creating brands. I'm passionate about selling. I love selling. You know, selling's a great buzz. You can't beat that feeling of selling where everyone's happy. You know, and another one is, is getting sponsors on board. I want to teach people how to get sponsors on board. Sponsorship's played a huge part in my life. Mm. You know, we've had some international global brands coming on board your nintendos your the list goes on you know millions of pounds worth of sponsorship has come through through the doors here because we build relationships and we keep those relationships tight well for me the way i deal with relationships is about just being a good bloke with people give them experiences they're backing you they want their brand exposed they want experiential marketing they want to get in the hands of the people that we got in a field for three days I feel like I've got a lot to give back, Dan. It feels like the next chapter in my life, doing a thing called a podcast. I didn't know what a podcast was till a couple of months back, you know, and uh, I'm really enjoying this journey and, um, and the, next, the next chapter is we're doing this and obviously creating the events course that, we, that we're creating at the moment, which is going to be launched in uh, November time which we're super, super excited about here at HQ. Yeah, a lot going on here. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, considering it's a time where a lot of people are kind of winding down a bit, uh, there's a lot going on. Well, that feels like a good place to stop and we'll leave the rest of your journey to another episode. Uh, personally, I think that's where it gets even more interesting. So make sure you subscribe if you want to hear the rest. Uh, there's some really, really insightful stories, funny stories that I've heard uh, from you, Dodge. Uh, you've got plenty of those coming up. Some really juicy stuff to do with the actual success of Bournemouth Sevens and how, how it's grown and how it's become the beast it is today. Uh, so if you want to find more about that, subscribe, leave, leave us a cheeky review. Uh, but other than that, Dodge, as always, it's been fascinating. Looking forward to the next one. Lovely. Thanks for your time, Dan. And you, mate. Cheers. Good man. I'm forever blowing bubbles. I'm forever blowing bubbles.